We're talking about the end of the world this week. Sort of. In a manner of speaking. We'll get to that. We're in chapter 24 of Matthew, which has parallels in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, and in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. And these chapters are often described as being in the genre of apocalyptic literature. That much is true. It's just that people often have a bit of a misconceived idea of what the apocalypse is all about. Because apocalyptic is not about the end of the world. At least if we mean the literal end of the space-time universe, and the final judgment, and the resurrection, and all that. We're going to turn to our old friend N.T. Wright to get a little perspective on what exactly this sort of writing was all about in the ancient world. What would a first-century Jewish person, which is what Matthew was and what most of his readers were, what would they have heard when they heard something that was in the genre of apocalyptic? Before we turn to Matthew itself, we're going to look at that just for a second. Apocalyptic, Wright says, literally means revelation, a disclosure of things not ordinarily made known to humans, usually using symbols and events to stand for and describe other events. One common feature that you may be familiar of if you've read the Bible very much was using animals and mythological figures to stand in for kings and rulers and empires and other powerful figures. Why would you do this? Well, it's dangerous to speak the truth about powerful figures openly. An apocalyptic is, in a certain sense, the language of the powerless. Wright says they are writing cryptically using secret codes that may get past the censor. Let the reader understand. They speak confidently of a great reversal that is to come. It is the subversive literature of oppressed groups. And what's the message of this subversive literature? It is, as Wright says again, about the great reversal that is to come. God will act to liberate the oppressed and throw down the powerful empires. God's kingdom will replace the kingdoms of the world. And so, again, quoting Wright, when they used what we might call cosmic imagery, the stars falling from the sky, the earth shaking, the moon no longer giving light, that sort of thing, when they use cosmic imagery to describe the coming new age, such language cannot be read in a crassly literalistic way without doing it great violence. The restoration which would be brought about was, of course, painted in glowing and highly metaphorical colors. How else could the writers give voice to the full meaning of what was to take place? And the key for our purposes is that, and this is another quote, the events spoken of in apocalyptic literature, including the ones that were expected to come as the climax of Yahweh's restoration of Israel, they remained within what we think of as the this-worldly ambit. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with the world itself coming to an end. That makes no sense, either of the basic Jewish worldview or of the texts in which the Jewish hope is expressed. So, to sum it all up, for our purposes today, when a Jewish person in Jesus' day used this sort of genre, this sort of language, they were writing about the day that the fulfillment of Israel's hopes would come to pass, which was very much a this world sort of hope. Jewish hope was for the end to come, but the end of the age, not the end of the world. The hope was that the age of empires oppressing Israel would end and the age of the kingdom of God would replace it. And the kingdom of God and the the Messiah who would lead Israel into this glorious future, those were part of this world, 
not some other world, and certainly not some disembodied spiritual existence. And I say all this off the top so that when we turn to Matthew 24, we can have the right glasses on, so to speak, and the meaning can be a bit clearer. Because some of what we're going to read is going to sound like it's talking about the end of the world, because we are so used to hearing it through those sorts of lenses. But that isn't what's going on. And we can see that from the very setup of the chapter. This is how chapter 24 starts. As Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Just a sidebar, the temple had massive white marble stones and it took up about one-sixth of the city of Jerusalem. It was this massive white mountain with accents of gold in the middle of the city. It would be a hugely impressive sight for a group of Galilean peasants like the disciples. So they pointed out in wonder. And then Jesus asked them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. And then in verse three, when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will this be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples understood quite clearly what Jesus is saying here. His prediction of the destruction of the temple leads them to ask in the very next verse about Jesus's coming and the end of the age. Now, centuries of people have read these words and thought that a shift had happened, that we somehow jumped from talking about Jerusalem and the temple falling to the end of the world and Jesus's second coming in just one verse. But if we look at this chapter through first century Jewish eyes, we wouldn't see any jump in topic at all. It all fits quite nicely together. The end of the age is not the end of the world. It is the coming of God's kingdom. And Jesus is coming as the king, not his second coming, as we might assume. The past three chapters leading up to this one, 21, 22, 23, from the time Jesus entered Jerusalem until now, they have been all about Jesus saying that God's judgment rests on the temple and on the leaders of Israel that the kingdom of God is here, the true king is here, and that, that, that he, Jesus, is that true king. So these ideas, they're all connected for the disciples. And their question makes perfect sense as a response to Jesus speaking of the stones of the temple being cast down. The age of that temple would soon be over, and the age of the new temple, Jesus himself, is arriving soon. And then Jesus' answer to the disciples also makes perfect sense, starting in verse 4. Jesus answered them, Beware that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will hand you over to be tortured and will put you to death and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away and they will betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Now, this all happened in the first century, and then the end came. 
in AD 70 when Roman soldiers marched into the city of Jerusalem and burned the temple down. In the years leading up to AD 70, as tensions in the eastern part of the empire ratcheted up higher and higher, the Christians found themselves squeezed on both sides. The emperor Nero increased the persecution of Christians by the empire. Jews distrusted where these Christians' loyalties lay and cast them out of the synagogues and of their fellowship, and it all came to pass just as Jesus had said. And if this sounds strange, we should turn to the parallel in Luke chapter 21, where Luke is is recounting the same words of Jesus from slightly different angle. In verse 20, Luke makes things way more specific. The end will come, quote, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Again, this happened in AD 70. Okay then, but then jumping down to verse 29. Immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, surely we have jumped to the so-called end times, right? The sun darkened, stars falling from the heavens. That's creation coming undone, right? Well, not really. These were quite common examples of how apocalyptic language worked in Jewish literature. We saw exactly the same images used in Jeremiah to describe not the literal end of the world, but the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon 700 years earlier. Jesus is doing the same thing here again. This whole chapter is practically just a mashup of all the things the prophets said about the first destruction of the temple. The language is metaphorical, like when we might say, it was the end of the world for me when something terrible happens, or it was an earth-shattering event. No one takes that literally. It would be absurd if someone were to say, well, clearly you are mistaken about that because the earth is very much still in one piece. N.T. Wright says about these verses, whatever a first century Jew might have made of them, the one thing they would not think of is that it was a prediction of the literal end of the world. That would make no sense within their worldview. But what about that coming on the clouds of heaven bit? Surely that's about Jesus's you know, second coming, right? Well, Jesus is quoting here from another of the Old Testament prophets, Daniel. And this is from chapter 7 of Daniel. It's a very common example of apocalyptic literature that was well known in the first century. And this chapter is about various beasts who wield power over the earth and who are quite clearly meant to represent earthly kingdoms like Assyria and Babylon and Rome. And this goes back to what we were saying earlier about apocalyptic. One of the features was using beasts to stand in for kings and empires. And it gives just enough plausible deniability to get past the censors of the day. And so this chapter is not about beasts, but kingdoms. Kingdoms which will be shattered when the true king comes. Daniel says, I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking, one of the beasts. And as I watched, the beast was put to death and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Again, we're talking about empires that are burned with fire, destroyed, subjugated under other empires, that sort of thing. Then Daniel goes on in verse 13. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being, sometimes it's translated one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one 
and was presented before him. He came to God and God's throne. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that will never be destroyed. So, if you are paying attention, the coming in this passage is not a coming to earth for the last judgment, but rather a coming from earth to heaven to appear before the throne of God. The image is of a human being appearing before God to be given power and a kingdom that would stretch to the ends of the earth and would never end. Jesus is echoing this passage when he quotes Daniel 7, saying that the Son of Man, Jesus, will come on the clouds of heaven means that Jesus is going to be exalted, to be crowned king before God, because the kingdom of God has come. And the message about this new king, then, will go to the ends of the earth, so that all might have the chance to put their trust in this king. Jesus' coming is about the coming of the kingdom of God, not the end of the world. And it comes, this kingdom, Jesus is shown to be the true king in three main ways in the first century. First, Jesus's resurrection and ascension. If ever there was an event that deserved to be talked about in terms like earth shattering, it's when Jesus is raised from the dead. The age of death is over. The age of life is here. The end of an age, the beginning of life, Jesus has gone to heaven to be crowned the true king. So that's the first. Second, the destruction of Jerusalem is a way that this kingdom comes and that Jesus is shown to be the true king. Jesus stakes his reputation, just like Jeremiah did, on predicting that God's judgment is about to come on the city, on the people of Israel, even on the temple, God's house. It matters that this happens because it both shows clearly that God is done with the religious establishment of the temple and that Jesus was telling the truth. His words were, in fact, the word of God. He is a true prophet because what he said would happen did happen. So the fall of Jerusalem is quite important here in establishing Jesus as the true king from God. And it also shouldn't be underestimated as establishing that an old age has ended. The city of God and the temple have been thrown down. That is the end of an old age, an earth-shattering event again. And then third, the message of this king spreads throughout the known world within a generation of Jesus's death and resurrection. By the time Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 70, Christians will have spread the news that the kingdom has come throughout the empire, just like Jesus predicts in Matthew 24. And I think this is actually why Matthew includes this in the first place, in a gospel that was written after the fall of Jerusalem. Why would Matthew think it is important to write so much about how Jesus predicts something that had already happened? And really, we could ask the same question for ourselves. If these passages aren't really about the end of the space-time universe and the final judgment and all that, but are instead about Jesus predicting something that happened almost 2,000 years ago, so what? What Matthew saw, I think, is that this chapter matters, both for his original readers and for us, not because it gives us forewarning about the world ending, but to show us that the world already has ended. Circling all the way back to the Jewish expectation that the coming of the Messiah and the coming of God's kingdom would be the markers of the end of the old age and the beginning of the new. Matthew is saying that happened. The age of Rome and of the oppressive Jewish leaders of the day, the age of their power is over. The new age has come. 
But in contrast to what many expected, it wasn't an immediate thing. Or it was and it wasn't. It was both immediate and a process. It would be like, as Jesus says in this chapter, the birth of a baby. He says in verse 8, all of this will be just the beginning of the birth pangs, labor. And I wonder if that analogy might help us wrap our minds around what Matthew is telling us here. Conception happens in an instant. A baby exists where it didn't before. The resurrection was a lightning flash of an event that shattered the old age and announced the arrival of the true king. But then, the baby isn't actually here yet, and there are months of preparation to come and discomfort and labor and danger before the child is actually here completely. There are whole months where you might not even know anything has changed, and you could almost act as if you were still in the old age, pre-baby. But the word starts to spread, family and friends hear about it, and you start living as if this new baby reality was real. I think setting up a nursery is a nice picture of what I'm getting at here. Months before the baby actually arrives, we set up a whole room as if the baby were already here. We put a crib in. We decorate it. We put little stuffed animals in the crib, even though there's no one to snuggle up against them. If an alien were watching what was going on, they'd be completely baffled. Why are these people acting as if there were someone living in this room when actually there isn't? Because the new age is here, even if it's not all the way here yet. But we need to act as if it were here now so that we're ready when it fully arrives. If we didn't act as if the baby were already here in that sense, it'd be kind of a disaster when the baby actually arrived. We wouldn't be ready for it. Jesus is king. The kingdom of God is here. Live like it. That's what Matthew sees as important in this chapter. It's a reminder for his readers and for us that the new age is here. Jesus' resurrection has flashed across the sky and shattered the earth. The words of Jesus really are the words of God because Jerusalem really has fallen, just like he said it would. The message of the kingdom has spread to all the nations of the earth. The kingdom is here. Let's live like it. And what we did in our time together on Sunday was to reflect on that a little bit, reflect about the different areas of our life, the different aspects of the kingdom, which ones we have seen in our own lives and which ones we'd like to see more of. So I would encourage you to spend some time doing that as well, if you would like to, to think about what does it mean for you today in your real actual life that the kingdom is here, that Jesus is king, and that we are called to live as if that new reality were real. See you next time.